Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Getting Technology Right Ethics and Technology Podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish. Get ready for a conversation about global values and technology, diversity and inclusion, discrimination, transparency in data, privacy, and cybersecurity. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello, and welcome to Getting Tech Right, the podcast about ethics and technology. My name is Kevin McNish, and with me today is Gemma Galdon-Clavel, a technology policy analyst who specializes in ethics and algorithmic accountability. She's founder of Eticas, a Spanish technology ethics consultancy, and a senior advisor to the European Commission. Forbes magazine described her as a leading voice on tech ethics and algorithmic accountability. So Gemma, hello. Hi. Great to have you with us. Great to be here again. <laughs> Thanks. So I gave you a very brief bio there, but could you perhaps flesh it out a little bit and tell us a bit more about yourself? Um, sure. So um, I lead this organization, Ethicas, uh, and I've been, I set it up 10 years ago, when, so way before anyone talked about those things, uh, when there was only a few of us in surveillance studies that cared about the role that technology was playing in more and more social processes. Um, and so for the last 10 years, I've been obsessed with not only having a critical understanding of how technology impacts society, but also providing solutions. It's like going beyond the critical stage to being like, okay, so what would it mean to do it well? You know, so we don't like what all these companies are doing, but what are we asking them to do? Uh, it's very clear what they should stop doing, but <laughs> what should they do or what could they do? Um, so with that kind of obsession, uh, we started testing um, algorithmic auditing about six years ago already to see whether it was a good way of inspecting and identifying uh, bias and inefficiencies in AI, AI systems because we saw that most AI that was being developed often didn't do what it said it did. Mm. Um, and it was often also really bad quality systems uh, where you know engineers had simplified social processes to a level that meant that they were completely useless or in most cases, very, very problematic in terms of the outcomes that they had and the recommendations and the decisions that they were making. So we wanted to see, well, basically wanted to explore about what to do about this. <laughs> and so we started auditing those systems and found that actually it's, it is a good way of, if you have a, a, a socio-technical team and if you have a methodology that is truly end-to-end, -end, you can improve AI systems and you can ensure that AI works well and that, they, that AI does what it says it does. Mm. That's really interesting what you say going back 10 years, um, which, which is probably when I first met you, I think, roundabout, yes. <laughs> um, about the, the, the academic focusing very much on the critical and not so much on the, on the constructive. Would you say that's still the case in academia or do you think there is a movement towards being more constructive as to how organisations can engage with AI in an ethical way? I, I still think that it, it continues to be a problem. I see mm. a lot of critical voices that don't want to engage uh, with a constructive criticism. And I, that's totally fine. Like, you mm. know, uh, I respect that. It's just that we need both. 
So yes. someone has to be the, yes. the constructive <laughs> voice, you know. Uh, so it's not about making sure that everyone who's critical is also uh, constructive, but making sure that someone is constructive. Yeah, 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 <laughs> um, completely agree. And so agree. we have to kind of uh, play that role and also understand the limitations of, you know, when you are constructive, um, you get in, into a, a much more complex space. You know, being critical is relatively easy mm -hmm. uh, because when you are constructive, you have to negotiate your own limits, your, your own understanding of the legal context or ethics. Um, moral principles. So, you know, it's, it's for me, it's the exciting stuff. And I always like yeah. to learn new things. So I, yes. I, I tend to get into the, the complex and difficult things. So I really enjoy working where I work because <laughs> I, I do feel that we are, we are shaping the future. Um, mm. you know, I, I often say that at, at Ethic, as we build the seatbelts of AI, you know, it's like the, the pieces that innovation needs to be safer. Cars don't need seatbelts to run, but you wouldn't buy a car or sell a car without a seatbelt because you understand that it protects you and that it, a car is better because of that. So what are the things that AI needs to have in order to make sure that people feel that someone's making their best effort <laughs> to protect mm. us? And right now that is not the, that is not the case. Um, and before there were seatbelts, um, it was hard for people to think, you know, how are we going to make these amazing things, but also so dangerous things, how are we going to make them safer? Or, you know, when the, when, when someone came up with the first vaccine, how to make sure that you didn't use human beings to test them, you know, clinical trials. Now they seem so obvious to everyone, but at yeah. some point someone had to come up with them. Um, and I think that it is the beauty of our generation. You know, those, those of us who are middle-aged now, we've, we've gone through the process in which these new technologies emerged and most of us celebrated them and we're not critical until very recently, you know, the eighties and nineties, mm. the whole left was about, you know, the possibilities and the, and the peer-to-peer the, the -peer networks and the, the leveling up of technology and how uh, the, the, like the access to lots of spaces that have been protected in the past now are going to become easier, lowering the, um, the entry uh, barriers to lots of pr professions and spaces. And we, we were stuck, uh, at least the people that I was reading back then, everyone was stuck in this celebratory mode we failed to identify the risks. And so I think that now we have the beauty to imagine and, and define and design the seatbelts of these systems because we realize that they're making us, uh, um, well, they're putting us in, 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 in really dangerous positions. They're making us worse as human beings. They're making us worse as society. And I'm not saying that technology is to blame for everything that's going on around us. I think there's a lot of blaming the algorithm uh, when you don't want to accept social processes that you don't really, that you don't agree with, that you're not comfortable with. Like I think that Brexit and Trump are probably not the fault of an algorithm, uh, but it's hard to realize that we, or to accept that we become societies that, you know, vote based on hate, but maybe we should address that and not so much the algorithm. But I think it is undeniable that social media and tech processes are, are making us question things. And I think that we need to mm. make sure that we have a, a mature debate around the possibilities and, and risks of these technologies. Yeah, that's, I, I really like that analogy of the seatbelts. I think that works really well. Um, and as you say, being, being of a certain age, when I remember when cars did not have seatbelts, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, when they started to become law, just in the back seats in the UK, <laughs> um, you right. sort of let them in the front. Uh, Everywhere, and, and, you saw, and you had car makers who pioneered, actually the, the seatbelt was not proposed by the regulator. It mm. was developed by Volvo. So it was the industry, part of the industry right. that said, listen, we came up with this. We think this saves lives. They decided to free up the patent and so not okay. to keep it to themselves. 
And but still, you had another part of the automakers who were like, we don't want to install this. This is costly. You know, people can protect themselves. So I'm trying to kind of create this in the tech industry because mm-hmm. there's good players out there who want to be the ones who put the seatbelts um, and, and, and to create them and free them up for the for the community. So it's not this, you know, you un- like this block of tech companies that want to do evil, like no one wants to do evil. Um, some do evil because of uh, commercial interests, but some people are also willing to not put commercial interests before anything else. Let's find those people and let's and let's shape uh, these seatbelts and the and the future of AI together with them. Yeah, that's that's excellent. Um, so in talking about AI, and obviously at the moment, um, discussion around AI tends to focus very much on large language models like ChatGPT yeah. and BARD and so on. What do you think are the main problems that those raise for society? Well, I'm still getting my head around it because for the last few years, we've been very much focused on, on high, what we call high-risk AI systems. That's automated systems that make decisions on whether you get a loan or a mortgage, mm. whether you get unemployment, like your life chances, because we saw how the public and the private sector were incorporating a lot of these systems that have very direct impacts on your life chances, and no one was monitoring this. And also, they're relatively easy to audit. So we've been focusing on, on high-risk AI, um, and that's what we've audited the most. Then what we realized is that in the same way that in the EU we have these high-risk high AI systems, we also put social media and, and, and platforms like ChatGPT into the minimal risk uh, category. Mm. And I think that's because we're only looking at individual risk and not at societal risk. And so I think that ChatGPT forces us to think about not only the systems that have individual impacts, which you know are people that are negatively affected or are victims of discrimination in, AI, in an AI system. We have a robust legal system that if we can identify and quantify how that happened, we can protect those people. So that's kind of an, an easy, a relatively easy thing to do. But what about the societal reflections about you know, what it means to have all our content mediated by these large corporations, what it means to source all your information from the knowledge that humanity has produced uh, for the last thousand years or since there's, we have things in, um, in writing and, and digitalized and use it for a system that is private and therefore at some point will be for profit. Like I think these are debates that have been on the fringes of the discussion uh, until recently. And ChatGPT gives us the opportunity to, uh, to discuss them. But I'm, I'm still wrapping my head around ChatGPT because the, the main thing for me is that ChatGPT is illegal. <laughs> like, and, and, and that's, but that's, that makes it really hard because like, you feel like you're, you're like fixing something that someone developed that sh- they should not have developed. It's like, you know, you develop a vaccine, you, um, you vaccinate people, and then you, you cause another disease. And then we all have to run. <laughs> And cure this new disease and it's like well if you, sh- you hadn't done that in the first place we would not be here but basically we have legal systems especially in europe that say you cannot scrap the internet for information that feeds into a system that is designed to do something that was not intended by the those that uploaded that information you know like my my phd is on chat gpt because my university put it uh on an open open repository i haven't had a chance to have an opinion on this I don't know what my PhD is feeding. Um, we're already seeing lots of problems with how ChatGPT understands um, and processes data. There was uh, the case 
of a lawyer who fights um, cases against uh, child abuse in the in the U.S. And if you Google that person, their name and the, the ChatGPT comes up with a biography that says this person is a pedophile because, of course, his name has come up in so many media yeah. outlets discussing pedophilia that that's what ChatGPT understands. So you have a, like a, an original sin, which is you collected data that you should not have collected, but also you did it in such a careless way that when the um, BPA, the Data Protection Agency in Italy says, you cannot use personal data from Italian citizens to feed your system, you can't delete them because you don't even know who the Italians are in your system because you didn't even document the process. So it's there's so many instances of carelessness, of failure to implement the most basic precautionary methods, uh, knowing that you were developing something um, that was potentially very powerful, that I that I just I just feel bad and it's wrong to then put the responsibility on the whole world. We're like, we screwed up. Now, how do we fix it? Well, you fix it, you know, <laughs> uh, but I just don't think they can. So I'm guessing that it's, we're going to have to we're going to have to help. Um, but so I think that, you know, the whole issue of the training data and, and we have landmark um, decisions, both in the US and the and in the EU, the Federal Trade Commission and the EU just, I think it was today or yesterday, maybe it must be today, um, saying that when you train your data on, or you train your systems on data that was collected illegally, you need to delete the systems and the data. And that's been ruled out already in the past. So mm -hmm. I think that ChatGPT, we need to say, you need to cease operations, delete your systems, delete your data, and let's rebuild something that is legal from scratch and where we can actually document what we do what we do we can protect people and we can we can come up with these precautionary measures um that's the only response possible i fear at the eu level right now with chat gpt but of course the level of um of of understanding human language and and replicating something that looks like human language um i think that's that's a massive step for for all of us and we need to make the most of that the thing is mm -hmm. how do we do that in a way that is responsible and so first you source your systems with data that you have a legal basis to collect then you incorporate safeguards and the ones that i can immediately think of and again no one's hired me or created a space for experts like me and you to think about this so i haven't been able to give it proper thought but but very basic things like attribution yeah. Like, you know, attribution is crucial in terms of uh, making sure that humans can process the information that, is, that they receive, but also if some of that processing is wrong or problematic or harmful, that we can go back to the source. If there's no attribution, the source is, is, chat, is chat GPT, then are you willing to take on the liability that comes with you releasing a system where um, information does not have, uh, is not linked to a source? Uh, another thing, you should not be able to chat GPT um, personal names uh, mm. of, like, of, of people because, you know, we know that whatever comes up, like, like go to Wikipedia if you want to do that, use um, Google that will give you the sources, but we know the chances of uh, a biography being compiled by chat GPT 
being wrong are so high that that should not be allowed. And you could still have the usefulness of the of chat GPT to, com, you know, to compose legal letters or to uh, give you simple answers to some problems or to help you with writer's block. Like, you know, I need something yeah. that then I can, I can, I can play with, but I need something uh, black and white and not just a blank paper. Like all these great things that ChatGPT does, I don't think change the world, but I think that just like with lots of other innovations from the last few years, they put us in a different space and they and they give us new possibilities. We should be able to explore those, but but not with the current version of, of ChatGPT. Mm. I think there's mm. there's too much that is very very problematic there. Yeah. Uh, thank you. That's great. That's a, a really, yeah, challenging and interesting response. <laughs> um, and, and certainly, as you say, in the light of the Italian DPA's decision to, to ban chat GPT, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes moving forwards, not to mention BARD and all the other large language models that are all doing very right. similar things out there at the moment. You've mentioned um, algorithmic audits a few times, and I think in, in a way you've just given us a, a bit of a glimpse as to what that involves, but could you explain a little bit more about what you do with an algorithmic audit? So an algorithmic audit, the way that we've designed it for, for high-risk AI systems that are systems that make a decision on, on an individual, and again, uh, a mortgage or access to university or um, claiming unemployment benefits, uh, or in the case of Spain, assigning risk to women victims of domestic violence, um, you name it. What we have is a process, an auditing process, that covers the whole algorithmic system. And this is important. We don't work with algorithmic models. A system can be comprised of lots of different models. So we care about the system, the service that you are providing. And we understand we, we, we audit that as, as, as an entity. Um, and so we, we, we go through the algorithmic system and we've identified 22 moments of bias and inefficiency. So 22 times when things can go wrong, but also when we can incorporate mitigation uh, measures. And that covers not just in processing, but also pre-processing and post-processing. That means that our first moment of bias is techno-solutionist bias. Right. So we look at, you know, could you do this differently? Are there any non-technological or um, technological means of getting to the same result, but without collecting personal data, for instance, or, or without using um, um, a, a system that, 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 that incorporates information without human supervision? Like, could you use something that is not, that doesn't have machine learning and it's just an actuarial system? So kind of assess whether what the, the problem that you want to solve, like I want to assign mortgages better, um, is actually best achieved by or through using uh, an, an AI system. The second one is selection bias. We often find that systems are trained on the data that engineers have available and not the data they need to answer a problem. So we have the, the famous case of Ofqual in the US, an algorithm um, designed to um, prioritize people in the emergency room in 100 US hospitals that when audited, uh, it was found that it was trained on financial data and not medical data. So you were rushed in the emergency room if your disease was expensive, not serious. And you know that might make sense for the engineer who trained the system, but any doctor or any patient would tell you that that doesn't make sense for anyone else. And you do not want to prioritize people based on cost. Um, you want to prioritize people based on, on medical issues, because that would mean someone with a cancer would be rushed into the hospital mm. because a, a cancer is likely very expensive to cure and it's a long process and someone with a heart attack 
would maybe wait for hours because you know it's something that can be relatively cheap um, to uh, to cure. That's 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 plain wrong. So we see a lot of wrong decisions that stem from this selection bias. So we look at what are what is the data that have been used to train the the system, then and then of course historical bias and a whole uh, like a long list of twenty two. Uh, yeah. instances of bias all the way to automation bias and implementation bias that is the bias mm. that humans can have when an algorithmic um, diagnosis or or solution has been given to them and then they have to implement it or communicate it to uh, to the end user so this allows us to have an idea on how the system works see whether the system is doing what it's supposed to do seeing whether the data is also doing what it's supposed to do making sure that we minimize the data that we uh, that we use the data that we that we need in order to um, solve a problem. That we have the indicators in the in processing. That we choose the model that we need. Uh, that we make sure that the the, the the model is not designed to eliminate out, uh, outliers. That happens a lot in in risk systems. Um, I often say like if 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 you use AI to automate how mortgages are given, um, on day one the system will discriminate women because we are underrepresented. In the training data sets, you would probably uh, uh, statistics tell us like 10 to 20 times less services that women receive from banks because of the historical discrimination. But that's going to be on day one. On day 10, only men with stable jobs will get will get mortgages because these systems are designed not only to capture existing discriminations but also to make the the average the the only um the only sample that that mm -hmm. you don't assign risk to so what the system does the way that it discriminates women in the case of mortgages is by assigning us more risk because we are underrepresented in the in the in the training data but but the system tends to want to eliminate risk so over time we disappear from the sample so again we want to make sure that these outliers are respected you know we we don't need to receive more mortgages than men, but we certainly want to receive as many mortgages as men do, or be, or not be um, assessed based on our gender, but based on our actual possibilities of uh, um, giving that back that money to the uh, to the bank. So that's what we do in in, in algorithmic um, auditing. That's when we do what we call second party auditing. That's when someone who develops or implements an AI system hires us to uh, to do that and to give them additional safeguards that the system works well. Another thing that we do is we do third-party audits, adversarial audits. When we team up with a civil society organization that, that feels that their members or constituencies are being negatively impacted by those systems, and together with them, we reverse engineer uh, systems that impact them. So in these cases, we, we don't have access to the data, we don't have access to the code or to the development uh, team, but we have access to uh, impact data. In lots of different formats, we, sometimes we can scrap data, we can do sock puppeting, sometimes we interview people, depends on the on the system and the availability. But we've done that with women victim, victims of domestic violence in Spain, whose risk is assigned by an algorithm. We work with tra taxi drivers in Europe um, to look at issues of uh, illegalities in terms of uh, in terms of competition law, um, competition law, labor law, and consumer law to to, to see whether the algorithms used by Uber. Um, Cabify and Bolt, the major players in Europe, comply with uh, with this legislation. We are currently working with people uh, who have um, Down syndrome to develop statistics on how facial recognition may be discriminating against people with uh, Down syndrome and other neurodivergencies. Um, so basically, when when civil society comes up to us, we have a, a, a fund 
that we can use to work together with them and understand how these systems work. And here, again, we have a different methodology. That means that we, we do a feasibility assessment. We look at the data that is available, either in academic publications, whether we can interview um, people, whether we have access to users, whether we can intervene in the system and scrap data or incorporate fake data in the system. And then based on that, we uh, we come up with a report that, that points to potential instances of discrimination. The, different, the main difference between the the second party and the third party is that in the second party, our data is hard data. Like what we find that, you know, if we, we can quantify discrimination and efficiencies and say that's the way it is. Uh, with third party auditing, we do a, a guess, like a, a very robust and, and backed up yeah. guess. But because we didn't have access to the system, we could not verify it. Uh, so it's more a hypothesis than a fact. Okay. No, that's fascinating. I, I, I do agree. I think your, your third party auditing particularly is um yeah probably unique uh, as to what you do there as a, as a civil service um opportunity oh, but, it, but, it's, but it's so important and what we find is that in the hmm. process we we're building capacity with these civil society organizations so that they understand how these systems work and then in the future they don't need us to help yeah. them understand their, these systems but hopefully they can develop their own capacity i just think that any cso out there is going to have to incorporate the technological aspect to everything that they do in terms of advocacy, you know, work on the ground, like they need to, they, they're going to need literacy, like tech literacy skills and understanding how these systems work. And we find that through this process of reverse engineering systems, um, we, we're creating so much awareness and knowledge in those organizations. That it's, it's something that's very worthwhile doing. And I encourage mm -hmm. anyone to do it. We, we will publish a guide on how to do third-party algorithmic auditing uh, in the next few weeks to help others do this because we just need everyone to be auditing the systems that impact their lives or the lives of those around them. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and wonderful to make it publicly available as well. I think that that's wonderful. Um, so what do you think motivates, well, I say, what do you think? What what does motivate companies to come to you as, as second party companies, other than a fear that you might audit them as a third party company? <laughs> Um, there's so, so we've had we I often say that we work with pioneers like mm. you know that um, we are beginning to see legislation in Europe and the US that incorporates a legal requirement for auditing but it's still early days I think a lot of companies think they can get away with not doing anything until it's really mandatory you know more mandatory than actual law um, but uh, but but so the people that actually put a budget behind their concerns about their systems are people that have the awareness but also feel the potential risk. Mm. Um, so I think you need a combination of both. You need awareness. And a lot of companies out there are aware that this is potentially problematic, but it's only when the awareness is combined with a, a, a feeling of risk, a very, um, a very real risk, then, then the budget emerges for them to be able to, uh, right. to hire us. But luckily, that is it's it's getting easier and easier. Uh, but it, it has to be this combination of awareness. Like a, a bad player will not come to us, sure. <laughs> so you need to have the awareness and the care. But you also need to feel that you have compliance risks. And and I think that that's probably the the fear that is emerging the most is not so much that we will come to them. It's not so much that they will have to do it because of digital legislation. It's more about their own liability. Like if we incorporate systems designed by others, we are the ones legally responsible for what those systems do, and we have no idea what they're doing. And I think there's more and more of a, an understanding, especially for the organizations that incorporate 
systems that they are developed by uh, others, so implementers and not so much yeah. developers. Yeah, that's interesting. That's something that we've seen in our research as well is that a, a number of um, organizations that don't take procurement that seriously at the moment. They don't seem to have the ethical guardrails in place and they're just buying stuff in, as you said earlier, just taking it at face value as it's sold to them. Um, and then yes, the risk potential there is huge. Yes, and I think there's more of an understanding of that. And I think there's been an awareness of the, how tech procurement is broken and it's mm. been broken for a long, long time. We've been making bad decisions and a lot of the problems we have with data protection stem from this. You know, like you buy a system from a third party to organize uh, your backend, and then you realize that the private, the, the personal data is not secured as it should be. And I think that the industry has been kind of trailing along, uh, but with AI now, this is becoming unsustainable. My main issue is that we need to go back so much and so long for it to start fixing these issues that it's it's going to be because we didn't do things well from the beginning and on time it's going to be a lot more complex to uh to address now but i guess uh, you know it's better better late than never yeah <laughs> so as you say if, if the awareness is broadly there then is it a matter of just helping people to understand the risk or is it a matter of upping the risk that would get them to engage more with ethical ethical guardrails ethical movements I I mentioned before how, how with seatbelts, it was Volvo that came mm. up with them. <clears throat> I think that's the main, the main piece <clears throat> that we are missing. What you have, and, and I have a lot of experience both with, the, with the industry and with policymakers. And I, and I see how much the debate is, or the, like the, the spaces for them to collaborate don't really exist, or the spaces for them to understand one another. So you have the industry saying, regulator, you're not clear. The regulator saying, industry, you know, I've laid the principles very well, I've told you what to do, now you go and do it. And it's like one blaming the other. And I think we need something in the middle. It's like, okay, I'm taking industry, I'm taking your concerns into consideration. Uh, policymaker, I understand the principles that you want to protect and that mm -hmm. you're responsible for protecting. And I think this is one way of addressing this. And it's like, again, it's like Volvo saying, policymaker, you care about safety. Industry, we also care about safety. Maybe seatbelts are a reasonable um, thing to invest invest on. Unfortunately, the industry has not played that role. The industry has not been forthcoming in saying, maybe we could do this. Hmm. Um, I think that's a due to a combination of things. I think that technology is inherently socio-technical. Personal data is data from society. And all tech that is developed today is developed solely by engineers and tech people. And I think that in order to understand the social impact of your technology, you need that knowledge. So it's, I often say, you know, it's, it's like trying to build a skyscraper with only uh, plumbers. Hmm. You may have the best plumbers, but you know, a skyscraper is a risky thing. You're gonna need plumbers and electricians and you're gonna need uh, architects and you're gonna need a plan, you're gonna need painters, you know, and a lot of people to outsource things from outside. Like, and you may be the best plumber, but you cannot do it on your own. You cannot hmm. build something complex if you only know about plumbing. Um, the same thing with engineers. They can be the best engineers, but unless they understand that they need others, and unless they're the best at also talking to the others, like communicating with the electrician, like, no, that's what I need from you, <laughs> you will not be a good plumber. And I think that we need to be very clear about this. AI is inherently socio-technical. It is fed by data that comes from society, from human beings, 
uh, that don't act rationally all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the beauty of us, but that needs to be incorporated into those systems and understanding this needs to be part of the designing of the solutions. And I think mm. that the industry has not been forthcoming because they didn't have the teams that could understand where the yeah. legal regulations came from and how to build those seatbelts that we that we need. So at Etikas, we're, we're trying to, you know, very humbly, we're trying to do this, like trying to understand and hear everyone and be like, okay, so we think that algorithmic auditing covers the last mile of enforcement that both regulators and the industry are concerned about. You know, we have the regulations, we have the standards, we have all of that. But then the impact of AI are very much uh, contextual. How do you understand what actually applies to your system? Well, let's use the audit. The audit is a dynamic methodology that we can change. It's not fixed like a law. It's not fixed like a standard. It allows us to play with what you have, the potential impact that we identify, and fix them in the context that you are working on. So it, 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 it covers this last mile of enforcement that we've been struggling with since GDPR in, mm. in 2016. Um, but I, I guess we need more ethics or more teams that are, that are saying, okay, let's put something on the table. Would this work? Is this something that would solve some of the problems that we, um, that we, that we have? And auditing for me is the main tool in that process because it's the most complex tool. Um, but we've also been working on other things. We've developed and designed an algorithmic leaflet. Again, taken from, from another, another field. In, in the medical field, when you, when you buy a medicine, it comes with a piece of paper that tells you what's in it, how to use it, what clinical trials have been developed, who's responsible for the system. If everything goes wrong, what to do? Uh, we need something like this for AI systems, both for the buyers of those systems to know what it is that they're buying, but also for the developers to, uh, to, be, to have some transparency mechanisms and documentation mechanisms that can be translated into this, into this document. We are working on certification. We are working on algo scoring. Could we develop something like the A++ that we use in, in Europe for, uh, for home appliances mm. or something like a Nutri-Score that you, know, you need to be uh, a nutritionist uh, to know that when you to compare between two yogurts at the supermarket because you can look at the Nutri-Score and see uh, which one is healthier. We, we need to develop these kind of things. And, and, and it's not that hard. Like, you know, we've been doing this since forever. Since there's been innovation, humanity has been negotiating the harms of innovation and mitigation, mitigating those harms in order to save innovation. Like innovation can only thrive if we minimize the negative impact. But we need to make a specific effort to minimize those, those negative impacts and not just hope that they'll disappear on their own or that a tech solution will fix the tech, the tech problem <laughs> yes. in the first place. You know, I think we need to be a bit more, um, a bit more kind of sophisticated about the solutions to the problems that we have at hand. Excellent, thank you. I want to give you one, one last chance. Um, we've got about two minutes left. Is there anything we've not covered or a call to action, anything that you would like to just share in the last couple of minutes that we have? Oh, I think I've, we've covered a lot. We have. Um, just <laughs> encourage everyone to engage in third-party auditing. I think that is, that mm. is crucial but also um, go to the private sector and the regulator and, and, and tell them that we need specific solutions. We need the methodologies that will make this possible. The time of principles has passed. It's not about transparency. It's not about privacy anymore. It's about how to, yeah. uh, to protect privacy, how to be transparent. What does it mean in different verticals? You know, it's now we are at a moment when things get complicated and complex, mm -hmm. but that's also the most interesting part. Like, I love yeah. what I do. I feel so challenged every day. I'm like, there's so many things that I know I don't know, but I want to learn about. Um, and I, as I said at the beginning, it's the beauty of our generation. You know, we, mm -hmm. we fail. Uh, the young people of today in not identifying these things soon enough. Let's make sure we don't continue to be late. Let's take the bull by its horns, as we say in Spanish, 
and let's put solutions on the table. Excellent. Well, thanks, Gemma. That has been a very inspiring and uh, energetic half hour. So thank you ever so much for your time. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you back on again and I uh, hope to see you in the not too distant future. Thank you. Always a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Getting Technology Right, Ethics and Technology podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.